Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon here with my friend and podcast colleague, Mr. John Kaplan. Johnny how Mac, doing, how Kat? are you? How are you, buddy? Good to I'm be good, here. Brother. Good. Glad to have you. Got a special Thanks. guest today that I met at Blade Logic, where he joined as an SE. And after watching him just a little bit, I knew immediately this guy was going to go really far in his career. And after Blade Logic was acquired, he held a few specialty positions at BMC. Then he moved to Dynamic Ops and ran all pre-sales engineering. At that time, Dynamics Ops was acquired by VMware. And at VMware, he was the director of cloud management strategy. And there he launched VMware's first organically developed SaaS management product. From there, he moved to Sumo Logic, where he managed the Sumo Logic platform, pricing, packaging, and also technology partnerships. Today, he is the chief product officer in charge of all cloud products and go-to-market strategy, which includes product management, growth marketing, which you want to talk a little bit about, and product operations. He was the person behind the launch of their original cloud product named Atlas, which now accounts for close to a half a billion dollars in revenue. Please help me welcome, Cap, the super talented Sahir Azam. <clears throat> Sahir, how are you, brother? It's, it's really, really good to see you again. We're joking in the, some of the pre-recording. We're going to call you uh, Benjamin Button because <laughs> over the years that we've known you, you, you're getting younger and younger. But it's really, really great to see you. It's, uh, I'm excited for you to be with us today with your great background of merging your technical and pre-sales and product and go to market. This I'm really looking forward to this segment. I'm very happy to hear uh, to be here. Appreciate all the kind words. I don't know if my uh, family and friends would agree with the uh, Benjamin Button statement, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> you look good, buddy. You, you look, look good. Great to hear. I was telling Cap earlier that when I first met you, you were walking into the Blade Logic office with Damon Miller, who headed all pre-sales. And I thought, who's, why is he bringing like a high school kid to work? Like, what is that? You know, but only after watching you after a short while, I was, like, I was sure you were going places and you already have and, you, and you'll go a lot farther. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. I will say that um, that process of kind of bumping in and getting hired into Blade Logic, I, I tell people this all the time, was really sort of a, you know, accidental but pivotal sort of moment in my life you know it really changed my whole you know outlook I kind of I think my you know career would be in a very different place if Blade Logic hadn't like changed the profile of the people they were hiring and I didn't happen to like get the call from the recruiter that just kind of you know all things clicked it was certainly not intentional it was luck at that point but um 
it really was a pivotal moment. Well, we're glad to have you. Hey, see here, let's, you want to just jump into it right away? So part of this is educating our audience. And I think a lot of people don't actually know what a chief product officer does. So can you just educate the audience a little bit on what does a chief product officer actually do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the flavors of chief product officer in the, in the market vary a little bit, but for me, it's really first and foremost, being responsible for setting the strategic direction of the product portfolio. So really figuring out what are the interesting business opportunities? What are the, you know, products or capabilities if it's a single product company that, you know, need to be built based on customer feedback, the dynamics in the market, and sort of, you know, also really assessing what makes sense for an organization to build based on the right to play, which is to me a combination of what your brand allows you to be able to go after in terms of, uh, you know, solving problems. And then secondly, what type of go-to-market strategy you have. And, you know, in particular for me, my, you know, passion point is really the intersection of the product strategy and the go-to-market strategy, because I feel very strongly those two things have to be very connected and cohesive. Um, and oftentimes you might have a product that's really strong and, a, you know, that has the wrong aspirational distribution model or vice versa. you got a really strong go-to-market, but a product doesn't fit the way that go-to-market organization looks. So, um, you know, I think really cross-functionally aligning an organization around that ultimately is a chief product officer's job uh, to kind of play that glue and connective tissue between the organization on the direction of the products in the company. But they're not always in every organization connected, right? A lot of times you have somebody that's in charge of product and product management and someone else that's in charge of product marketing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and, and, and MongoDB, you have both. Yeah, we've built a structure where, um, you know, I have product managers uh, closely integrated with their colleagues in product marketing, working on the positioning, messaging, you know, articulation of that value, as well as product design, um, you know, sort of working together in terms of the core product execution. I also have a team called Industry Solutions, which is sort of like a layer above the product layer that thinks about applying the technology to verticalized industry you know, use cases and, you know, it's a, think of it as like a solutions marketing and kind of specialist or evangelist function in the field. And I think really, you know, product marketing and product management, there's a sort of Venn diagram of overlap of skill set there. And at different organizations, the line's slightly different on how those things are defined. But we think it's really important, that, you know, regardless of how they report organizationally, but the, for those two functions to be paired up really closely to have a successful outcome. Now, see here, you also have what people term growth underneath you or growth marketing, right? You want to educate the audience as to like what, what that includes and what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, a little bit of maybe historical context here. You know, when we launched the cloud business uh, at Mongo and back in 2016 and really tried to, you know, expand the company's strategy in many ways, sort of pivot the core focus of how we go to market around a SaaS business versus an you know, enterprise upsell on an open source technology. Um, it did allow us to really diversify our go-to-market strategy quite drastically. And you know, certainly we have the DNA and strength of direct enterprise sales, but you know, our inside sales model was struggling at the time. And we really had none of this new bottoms up, direct to developer, consumer style, you know, product-led growth kind of a model at all. 
And so we did sort of fund and create new parts of the organization, both on the marketing and product side. And I helped help kind of build up and incubate both the growth product uh, side of the house, as well as the growth marketing sort of side to really think about, you know, the line blurring between, you know, the front of the funnel all the way down to, you know, product usage and revenue and really thinking about constant experimentation and optimization. So when I think about you know, growth marketing, one, it's very much like treating and looking at the entire funnel as a revenue source for the company, not just mm-hmm. some very top funnel sort of, you know. Leads, yeah, not just leads, yeah. Not, and really taking a very analytical and data-driven approach to driving experiments constantly to try to move the needle on, you know, not just a linear funnel, but constantly trying to, get people into a viral loop, referrals, you know, um, and trying to drive efficient growth for the business. So, you know, organizationally today, growth marketing is actually matured in, in the sort of like driving of, you know, big part of the acquisition of the revenue of the company. We folded that back under the marketing organization, but we work very hard to make sure the growth product team, the growth product, growth marketing team are one, you know, think in one mindset or measured the same way operationally across that. And, I think one of the things I'm most proud of of what we've accomplished at Mongo is really kind of building up that bottoms up motion in a way that's cohesive and additive to our great strengths in sort of strategic selling and direct enterprise sales. Right. Now, because of that, you own both the free tier, basically the free product that people could download for free and use. And then you also own the paid tier. You want to talk a little bit about where people can actually download the software, pay for it, and they're on their way. Can you describe some of the challenges of having a free tier, paid tier, you know, maybe where the line is drawn and those types of things? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of this is rooted, I think, just at a more macro level in the fact that enterprise software and the way people want to learn about and try technology is very different than, you know, the, the days back at Blade Logic or, you know, in that era. I think, the, you know, if you don't have a very seamless way for your end customers to try and use a product, you're many times never going to get in the door. Right. And for MongoDB, our con- core constituency and kind of persona that we target is the developer. That's amplified, you know, and that's sort of mm. always been something that's driven and powered, you know, sort of the very top of our funnel. It originally was our open source you know, sort of adoption globally, but in many ways that still is the very top of funnel of, you know, driving learners and students and everyone trying Mongo. But we viewed the free tier as sort of the SaaS proxy of that same effect. And I, and I, you know, one of the things, I don't know where I read it, but, you know, the free tier in my mind is the oil in the engine of a bottoms up go to market in a lot of ways. Now, there are definitely way different models, you know, whether it's free trial or a permanent or perpetual free tier like we have, whether you gate it on features or whether you gate it on, you know, usage. But, you know, I think here at Mongo and certainly, you know, what I've learned over a couple of mistakes in the past, I feel strongly that in a consumption-based pricing model, which is what we have, you want to really gate it on real usage as opposed to features and capabilities. Because if you want to widen that funnel as far as possible, make it as easy as possible for learn people to learn and try your technology, why would you only show them a subset of that functionality and capability? You want to show them the richest, most powerful experience as possible and perhaps gate it on, you know, it's 
development. It's dev and test trying things out as opposed to when things actually get to scale when they're when they're more willing to pay for you uh, for the product. Now, that's not the only way it works. There are plenty of examples and perhaps other personas, other businesses where a free trial model makes sense, where you don't need long-term usage. But the dynamic with us is, you know, we're playing a 15, 20 year game here. We want developers building their prototype apps, their side projects, staying connected to us. And that's why we've chosen not to have a free trial to give a really rich sort of experience in the future as much as possible um, philosophically, and then let the conversion happen through us nurturing deeper and deeper usage and, you know, letting those apps mature to when they need to get, you know, to something at some scale. Right. Now, uh, see here, you touched on consumption a little bit there. And I think different people mean different things by consumption. So a lot of people mean consumption because someone gives the customer gives them a purchase annual purchase order and then they burn down credits. That's consuming credits. And I think in your terminology, you mean, you know, basically sign a license agreement, start consuming, and we're billing you as you consume, which is a different model than giving an upfront purchase order for a year and then burning down credits. Yeah. And, and I think um, at our scale, we need multiple models is the reality. So we have that sort of pure pay-as-you-go model which is you come in, you get a free instance or a free connection to start using the database with very little in the way, you know, no license agreement, just a click through, just normal standard legal terms, like you're buying some sort of consumer product and you can get going. And then, you know, if you need to go to a paid tier or, you know, you want to go get to something that requires a certain scale, you enter a credit card and then we just bill you in arrears uh, on that consumption. And then, you know, I would say over the years we've matured and figured out, you know, when to layer in sales assistance there, because you, you do have high value customers there that maybe over time do move to a commitment, whether that commitment is upfront uh, and paid upfront or whether it's just a commitment where you're drawing down on that sort of, you know, commit in return for some discount. But fundamentally, it's a pay-as-you-go consumption-based model everywhere from both the self-service business now, even all the way up through the enterprise. And we've seen, you know, scenarios where our enterprise sellers are saying, you know, I want to get in the door. I want my organization, the customer to start using this product. They don't have a really qualified project, but they're not going to buy on a credit card. So give me the ability to at least go negotiate legal terms, security reviews and all that, even if they have a $0 sort of contract or $0 commit. And then, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a license for the, you know, the sellers and the CSMs and others, the technical uh, staff to basically go convince a customer to start just using the product with a lot of friction. And it's not that commitments, I think, are, are go away. It's just we're trying to move the commitment later in the customer lifecycle in return for discount. So, and in return, we unlock just customer acquisition at a much higher volume. Right. And, and that's, you know, it's a multi-year journey we've been on to evolve the organization towards really understanding how to make consumption integrated and create the right incentives both internally and for the customer to only go to a commit when it makes sense for both parties. But that's the model we've really sort of leaned into. That's, and it's well done. You're really, you're really giving the customer the flexibility to buy, you know, how they want to buy and try how they want to try. So John, Cap, I know the, uh, we can jump in here. So well, <coughs> I find the, the MongoDB, we're going to, 
I want to get back on the track in a moment, Johnny, where you go through prog- uh, career progression because I think uh, your background is just really awesome and amazing with through pre-sales and product and go-to-market and and strategy. And so we'll get there in a second. But <clears throat> the the history of MongoDB is amazing to me because when we first showed up there, when Dave first showed up there, that that was an open source company that had an unbelievable following of developers. You had this huge community of developers. You're trying to, at back in the day, you're trying to figure out how to, how to monetize it. And so it went from open source uh, and then to an enterprise model and then, um, and then to cloud, which I'm going to come back and talk to you about later. And we talk about just how you kind of pulled that off. But one of the one of the things that I find very interesting in the conversation is um, you made a decision from a product perspective to not make it about turning features on and off and make it more about consumption. Can you there's a lot of companies that are trying to figure that out right now. Could you kind of talk about the pros and cons and the. you know, the experience of the consumer? Did you get feedback from the consumer when you kind of landed on consumption? Give us a little bit of insight in that as if you were speaking to an audience that's trying to figure that out. Yeah, I think the first thing to work backwards from is the buying behavior of your end customer, right? And certainly, you know, there are products in the SaaS space, especially maybe at the application layer that don't serve developers, aren't infrastructure layer like we are where, you can absolutely have feature-oriented packaging that makes total sense. And then that yeah. can you can have a free trial that then goes with a basic product. And then as it gets from a team level to an organization wide, maybe you package that up as an enterprise offering or, or subscription. And that is a totally viable model. Yeah. I think in our case, the, you know, because of what really the large cloud providers that sort of leaned in with the, you know, compute storage layer, there was sort of a precedent set to say, no, like there's a way to do this and where you're truly kind of much more of a utility oriented model where you are really only paying for what you use. And that had certainly gotten a lot of traction with the developer and infrastructure technology players because of what the Amazons and the like had done. So in many ways, we sort of like emulated that aspect of it and said, like, if we really want to be competitive long-term in a cloud database market or a cloud data platform market, like we have to lean into being really frictionless. And the buying behavior in our case of developers is in many ways much more consumer-like than it is traditional enterprise buyer-like. And that was a big part of that that driver. And, And that actually showed up in the open source model and still does today too, right? It's like developers download the free technology, they play around with it on their laptop, maybe they even run it in production without any kind of commercial basis, but that ends up being sort of something that's a funnel. With our enterprise software, it's a much narrower, you know, target audience because we're only dealing with large organizations. Whereas with the SaaS product, you can leverage that funnel and the value prop is so much stronger that you can target the whole totality of users as opposed to only the large enterprise, you know, sort of customers. So that's really the dynamic. Um, You know, the, the challenges with the approach we've taken around, you know, the perpetual free tier, the philosophy of trying as much as possible to make all the features, you know, free, freely available in the SaaS version, 
and to be clear, we're not perfect there, but that's more a technical or engineering challenge at times versus a philosophy. The, that does come into play because, you know, especially early on, there's this fear factor of you give too much away or we yeah. like our monetization yeah. opportunity. But I think, you know, what's happening in product is not so different than what's happened in marketing. You know, the classic marketing approaches of gating the content and like capturing as much possible information in exchange for like some special white paper or, or whatnot, you know, that's kind of folded away. And now it's about, no, you write great quality content marketing, for example, and you syndicate and distribute it and you know, videos or whatnot. And what does it do? It doesn't actually lower your opportunity set of qualified leads or revenue or customers. It just grows the whole funnel so much that the bottom of the funnel ends up being bigger too. But that's, you know, it's not necessarily intuitive to folks. So in the beginning, you know, there's the natural like, oh, we, you have a free tier that's perpetual or you have a self-service business. You know, where's my selling opportunity or upsell opportunity? But as, as long as you manage the channel conflict, fine. And over time, I think the organization realizes that, oh, it just makes the whole pie so much bigger. Yeah. You know, in, in our business, the free tier and the self-service business source north of 50% of all of the Atlas ARR, which is, I don't know, north of 600 million or something even though the majority of that ARR now has a direct seller attached to it, oftentimes in a large commitment, you know, as well. But it's, it just creates one unified engine that every channel benefits from. It's not a, ultimately a cannibalization. It's an opportunity expansion. Love that. Love that. Johnny, why don't you take us for a little spin on, I'm dying to get into the pro, uh, career progression because I just think it's it's really diverse and I think it'd be awesome discussion. Right, because all the different roles that uh, Sahir has yeah. gone through and different experiences. So, yeah. so here, let's start with Blade Logic. Come in as an SE. You said you said earlier it was like a foundational experience that kind of helped define the rest of your career. You want to talk a little bit about you know what you think you learned there that prepared you for. Any of your other roles in the in the future? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. I mean, what got me there was, frankly, the company had sort of realized at the time, and I wasn't there for this decision clearly, but that you know, hiring career pre-sales folks wasn't getting it done, and instead they wanted to shift the profile to practitioners that they were targeting. So I was actually a practitioner. I was a you know, an operations or sysadmin working on, you know, writing scripts and managing infrastructure in the data center. <laughs> all that exciting so, stuff. Suddenly, yeah, <laughs> suddenly I became the target profile, probably still a little younger than what they were looking to hire, but I was the profile. And, you know, the company definitely took a bet on me in terms of, all right, you know, they saw something in terms of the soft skills, the ability to, you know, communicate or be well-rounded. And to me, it was interesting because I could leverage my technical depth and technical skills but not just be stuck behind a computer, you know, all day long. I could get travel. I could get out in front of customers. It was like, it was a much more varied role, which I, that was the motivating factor for me. Besides it paid a lot better than the job I was doing. <laughs> so I landed at Played Logic, and, um, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time that I was sort of joining at the sort of, you know, Harvard business school of enterprise selling um, at all. But at the, you know, when I, I've quickly gravitated to sort of the, 
what is you know more succinct and clear now to me, but at the what is really the intersection of the technology and the business. Like, how do you take a complex technical pro, you know problem, demonstrate value, build technical champions, and ultimately communicate that in a way that business stakeholders could understand? And I got enamored with the science of the sales process and like really how structured that was. I really love the competitive aspect. I love the team aspect of like, you know, I remember the, the VP, you know, running a large deal, like getting on the whiteboard and doing a qualification review with, you know, medic or medpick <laughs> at the time, like that really energized me. I, not only did I learn a lot, but it, like being part of that team going after a large opportunity and playing my part of it was really sort of energizing to me. Um, at the time. And what I learned was, frankly, all the business side of, you know, the selling that goes into, you know, complex enterprise software procurement. I remember, you know, my boss at the time and Damon Miller is, a, you know, still a friend. I was given my first demo and, you know, I was describing some feature when I was getting trained and I described something as neat and it still stuck with me. He's like, no, it's not neat. You have to explain like, <laughs> why it's important to the customer and what pain it solves. It's not like cool or neat. Yeah. And, but like that nugget kind of, you know, was a, it, it's a very anecdotal example, but it's like an example of those early years, what kind of stuck with me as a learning that then you mm -hmm. can kind of build a foundation off of. Um, the other thing, just being really early on in my career there and there's another, you know, Blade Logic, uh, long timer was uh, Tim Fessenden, who ran various functions there, but certainly pre-sales at the time. He really kind of called out something at a personal level for me as sort of a mentor or a coach where, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to go someday be like a CTO or someday wanted to go be a head of sales. Like I, I like there are parts of both of those long-term aspirations that were interesting to me because I liked staying close to the tech and certainly that was my background. Yeah. And I love the selling side, but at the same time, I didn't really feel comfortable that I could really go be a CRO or I had a VP of sales someday fully, but I love sort of both sides of it. And it was really Tim who kind of called out that there is value in the intersection of business and technology and the ability to kind of translate those things as a very valued skill set unto itself. And, you know, the role that exemplifies that probably most in an organization truly is product management or product yes. marketing. Yeah. And so that kind of like, that centered me a little bit of where to kind of focus. And, uh, you know, those were some pretty early distinct, you know, blade logic learnings, you know, and also just being in a culture of accountability and a culture of winning and, you know, that all of that, you know, is deeply ingrained from those early years. And, frankly, a lot of the relationships I have now in my career, many, many years later, that are the strongest are ones that were developed in that culture um, early on. Let's yeah, stick on absolutely. that culture piece, well, if well, you don't just mind, Sonny. Yeah. Just having a great product person, from what I've seen, can really help define the future success of the company. It's so important. Go ahead, Johnny. Yeah. So um, I want to stay on that culture piece uh, for a second. And um, just highlight a couple of things. So the most elite cultures that I've ever seen is this intersection between where the technology meets the positive business outcomes and you have resources inside the company that are really well aligned. Um, speak to listeners right now about you've got, you've got sellers, you've got 
pre-sales folks, you've got sales leaders, you've got um, you've got all these dynamics that are working in marketplaces and in these um, on these opportunities. What have been some of the characteristics of some of the greatest leaders that you've seen? I know we're sitting with one right now who kind of created that culture, but without embarrassing him, talk about what you've seen in how the sales leaders help the technical resources kind of find their voice in not a negative way like, okay, I've got an opportunity to kill a deal or I've got an opportunity to tell on the sales folks like this deal is not going to happen. But it's how, how do you build that great culture of really like you thrived in it on the technical side where you saw that intersection of where technical and business is, what are some of the great characteristics of leadership that you saw to bring that out and help the technical folks find their voice in that selling culture? I know that was a mouthful. Sorry. Is it clear? Yeah, I think I can, I had some reactions and you tell me if you want to dig into yeah. any certain sort of nuggets with it. I think I certainly felt that the pre-sales and sales team w- was operating in like a mutual respect, mutual accountability kind of a model. Meaning like, I know that there was very high accountability on the sellers to, you know, build pipeline to properly qualify an opportunity to, you know, and all the other things that happened downstream from that. And I had a lot of respect. I learned a lot from my counterparts, even peers on the sales side there. Conversely, we all knew on the pre-sales side that it was our job to build technical champions and ultimately get that POC win. Like we used to do these benchmark, you know, proof of concepts. And if we didn't like sign off of the criteria, feel like it was baked and execute on it, that was our end of the bargain. Like, you know, build those technical champions and win that POC. And so there was very clear, I would say, expectations around the role that pre-sales and uh, the sales you know, team themselves played in that dynamic. Like, and I never felt like it was just, I'm just a demo jockey or, you know, like got pushed around. And I think that was fostered by ultimately in a lot of ways, the strong relationship between the pre-sales and sales leaders locally. And the fact that, you know, if our VP Carlos or Dan Fougere, you know, would call me up on a deal to get my point of view on qualification I don't think my peers on the sales side ever, or maybe behind the scenes, ever like came to me and said like, oh, why'd you tell Dan that? Or why'd you tell Carlos that? It was always like, whatever, he's seeing things that I might not be seeing from a technical lens of what's not going well. It's only going to make us better in terms of, all right, maybe we're not as far along as we are, or, or maybe there are others that we have to win over. So I never felt like it was, there was like a lot of tension there because it was sort of like clear accountability, clear responsibility between those two teams. And, you know, you just build the relationship of knowing how to win together. And I think that's, that's kind of how it got built as opposed to the pre-sales team as a service function to sales. You yeah. know, it was very much a partner function. And I think that was a big part of, I just assumed that was normal. So like, you know, that remember, this is my first <laughs> pre-sales. First time you saw it. First time I really saw it in a lot of ways. So I got lucky and I, I I'll say at a personal level, I showed, I, I like hanging out with the sales team. I would always show up at the events and sometimes I'd be the only pre-sales person there or the first one to show up. So I, I you know, I don't think that, w- that wasn't intentional. It was just sort of naturally who, who I am. And frankly, that helped as well in terms of just the relationships and, you know, understanding sort of, you know, 
what they're dealing with and empathize, yeah. you know, the pressure they're under as sellers. Uh, so I think it's a combination of both. I think there's some natural personality, personal sort of areas. And then certainly this partnership between the two teams that was created in the culture professionally there. Yeah. So then see here, you go to dynamic ops and now you are running all pre-sales engineering and now you're in more of a leadership role. So can you yeah. talk about some of your learnings there? And maybe so, you carried some of what you saw at Blade Logic over there too. Definitely. I mean, no question. I think, um, you know, I think the, there was definitely a lot of domain knowledge from the BMC days that kind of helped there too, even post acquisition around the market and stuff. But the culture of management and leadership was very much the Blade Logic sort of uh, imprint that, that really left a mark, so to speak. So when I joined Dynamic Ops, I went over there with you know Carlos Delatori, who was my um, uh, you know the leader of the, the team locally in New York for for BMC there, and uh, JP Bowen, who was one of the top reps and leaders. And so the three of us sort of like went over as a mini team there. And so I had the luck of having some really strong relationships and professional respect of the the people I went with, and you know mentors of mine in a lot of ways. And so that was kind of a little bit of a running head start, but. I didn't go over there with the intention of leading a team at the time initially or running pre-sales. It was really more about actually wanting to get out there and be more of like the field CTO evangelist of sort of the vision of the company and kind of leading that aspect of it. And, and you know, I'd certainly built a lot of uh, skills doing that in the last few years at, at BMC. But um, clearly, you know, Carlos needed somebody to sort of, you know, be a partner on the pre-sales side, uh, working with him and, you know, helping him manage the pre-sales team, get it up to the level of rigor and cadence that we he was, you know, building up across the sales organization. So he asked me to take the role. I'd say, you know, the thing that was really challenging there was I was certainly... I think younger, if not much younger than the vast majority of the team I inherited. And there were, you know, a lot of strong folks on that team, at least in terms of strong skill set. It's not like I had, you know, I could turn over the entire team and start from scratch. Like there was a lot of really good talent I wanted to keep and keep on board and certainly some new talent we needed to bring in. But winning over the hearts and minds there was definitely, a, you know, a challenge, especially because I think I'm sure a handful of them felt like they should have been the ones chosen given they'd been at the company longer or, you know, had more experience on paper. So I think, you know, just anytime that first management job is is like, yeah. a, Oh, you think you want to be a manager. It sounds good on paper. And then you're sort of in the job and it's like, Oh, this, this people stuff's really hard. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> and, you're you know I didn't you have like, the opportunity. And you're all looking at you like, what am I going to learn from this guy? Yeah. Like what's totally. he going to teach us? Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, sometimes you get promoted and your team knows you and they're like, yeah, that makes an obvious sense. And you get to build a team from scratch. Those are the early, easier situations. This was the opposite of that. This was like, here's 12 people, something like that. Many of them have been in the company a lot longer, knew the technology more deeply, were more experienced. And so like, yeah, you know, who's this new guy coming in who the CRO or sales likes and, you know, puts them in charge. So it was a, it was a definitely, you know, like, thrown in the deep end, I think over time, like we got there, you know, a lot of those folks, um, I had hired other roles at VMware, we still keep in touch. So, you know, I was able to, thankfully, you know, I think in the respect of the majority of them, we also hired in, you know, some good talent from the outside to kind of scale up the team. 
But, you know, I think the partnership that Carlos and I had and JP and I had helped a lot there because we had a working model mm. of partnership, accountability and trust. Yes. That was the only thing that gave me the ability to get through the bumps and bruises of being a first time manager and, you know, raising the bar in terms of you know process and execution and accountability and the pre-sales team there. Um, you know, because right, you saw it yeah. once before, you knew what it looked like. So you had this vision of what you wanted it to look like. And exactly. there were struggles to get there. You knew what the, what the vision was. Exactly. Exactly. So, and so, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. I think, um, you know, the, the reality at dynamic ops was we got picked off the market by VMware probably sooner than the one, you know, the three of us plus others would join the company and really kind of revamp the go-to-market would have liked for sure. So, you know, I don't think we ever took it to the scale or outcome that we would have liked. You know, certainly I think that was a disappointing sort of, oh, you know, we didn't get to really take this to where we wanted. Now the flip side was the acquisition by VMware ended up being another one of those pivotal moments for me in terms of my own personal career trajectory. Though, as often you can't see that at the moment, you can only kind of see it in reverse, right? Yeah, so I want to talk about that. What I'm noticing and I didn't know before is that comment that Tim Fessenden made to you about product really yeah. stuck. And now you move to VMware and this is where you get your first, like, sounds like your first real taste of, um, you know, product, product management. Work. You want to talk a little bit about how you made that transition from being the leader of, you know, the pre-sales team to, you know, moving into product management and what with some of the things like, you know, oh shit, I didn't know this is what this is all about. I would say there's a couple. So that, you know, I think the, the sort of coaching and just sort of like that aha light bulb that Tim sort of set off in me and like doubling down in this sort of intersection between, you know, uh, technical and, and business that that was sort of that nugget and product being sort of the role that expresses it. I'll say, you know, we got acquired by BMC and I was there for a few years, you know, there was this, you know, mythical role of a GM of a business that, that sort of like, then was like, Oh, okay. So product people who are really good actually own a PL and a full business, you know, sort of end to end, even if within, you know, within an organization. So that kind of got layered on. I kind of learned about that at, you know, more of BMC and what that role looked like. So it kind of like sharpened my conviction in product and needing to get into that job because I saw that product, you know, successful product folks can really kind of move up in an org and have a really impactful general management sort of business role over time. So that, that kind of like was the, mm-hmm. I should say in terms of career wise. So when we got acquired by VMware, I really just got lucky to, you know, really click and, build a strong relationship with the general manager of that business unit at VMware that acquired us. You know, we started talking through roles and what I, you know, wanted to do. And I said, listen, I'll I'll move out to California, which was where, you know, VMware was headquartered. And, you know, I felt confident that I could help him get the new acquisition successful in the field. And, you know, and just in general, the products and the management, you know, portfolio was a budding part of the portfolio, a couple hundred million in this, you know, giant vSphere business. And we needed to get it to, you know, a billion dollars of revenue in the next two years. So I knew how to work with sales. I knew I could be great in front of customers, build sort of a tiger team of specialists or, uh, you know, sort of evangelists. That was my sort of contribution of what I could give back to the company post acquisition, as well as obviously just educate the product leaders and PMMs on what worked at Dynamic Ops and what makes it special. 
And in return, you know, I think I asked Jermaine for the opportunity to get more visibility into just sort of how to how the back, you know, you know, the engine, how the factory floor operates in terms of how you build product, how the engineering team works, how design works, and really, what did you really learn? What was the? What was, were there a couple big ahas? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was learning how to keep a engineering team motivated ah. for a product and a vision. That, you know, honestly, I have a somewhat much easier job of that at MongoDB because we deal with developers and developers are at least building for their, their own sort of yeah. instinct. But at a lot, most other companies, you have to get the development team to really understand who you're building for at a deep level and motivate them, you know, to do that. Not just like, here's the clear requirement of what you need to build, but, you know, to be able to attract and retain talent, like that skill of not just evangelizing to a customer, but evangelizing, documenting clearly, and, and it's frankly, it's different with engineers than it is with customers in terms of how you have to get that vision across in a credible way. That was a lot harder than I expected. And then I think the other aspect of it was the thinking and you know sophistication around how do you articulate a business case and go advocate for resources and investment internally that was definitely like a, a huge learning point because like, mm. yeah, we wanted to like tiger team, this new SAS product and you know, SAS was really early at VMware at the time that alone was controversial, but then, you know, competed with a more traditional enterprise, larger heavyweight product. So like, how do you go get buy-in in a, you know, somewhat politically fraught sort of situation where you're, yes. you're, you're, you're proposing something that maybe hurt someone else's product. And then go build the business case up to go make the case and get the approval from the you know general manager and the executive team to make that investment. That was a really uh, that was a lot of rolling up the sleeves, bumps and bruises. And what did uh, you learn? Did you actually try any you know first time, second time, and get turned down? Did you try yeah. the first time and, and it worked? And what did you learn I mean, when you had to sell I, internally like absolutely. that? Absolutely, the idea itself was the same, but I will say it took a lot longer. And frankly, I had to get comfortable with creating some enemies. And that alone was like a leadership development moment of like, it is. Yes. this is important for the company. Like, not everyone can be like my friend all the time. And it's no harm, no foul. Like, this is what I believe is right for the business. There's like, you know, getting comfortable with that with people that you like see every day. And like, frankly, many those people were established at the company a lot longer than I was. I came in kind of through an acquisition, you know, it was relatively new. And again, probably more junior in some ways. So I think that like leadership skill set of just getting comfortable about like, you know, I'm doing what's right for the business here. I'm being respectful. I'm making a fact-based uh, sort of argument here. Um, and really that sort of like, yeah, we, there's a term for it that I'm forgetting right now, but that, uh, you know, that like, I don't know, that kind of like water cooler influence and evangelism combined with the more structured side, like, really doing market analysis, understanding what the competitive landscape was, customer research, figuring out that, oh, there is a segment of the market that our product just doesn't fit. And they want a SaaS model. They want something lighter weight. They want something that's, you know, without a big multi-million dollar contract in a bundle, they want to just piecemeal it. Like, how do you go gather that market intelligence? You know, what's the competitive landscape look like? Who do we have to compete against? Then how are we going to distribute it? You know, one of the things I learned at VMware was how to deal with a much more multifaceted go-to-market structure than, mm -hmm. uh, than you know, just top-down enterprise selling. 
from, you know, like BMC, for example, and or dynamic ops. So, you know, do we distribute this through partners in a channel led motion? Is that the better way to get this to market? Do we, or do we try to go get the hearts and minds of the enterprise sellers that are selling the mainstream products? Like how much, how do you, you know, and then you have to out. get buy-in from those channels also to see if they want to sell your product and what's their viewpoint on, yeah. on the product, that, right? That's one of the key things that finally, I think, cracked it and got it through the line was some of the uh, channel owners sort of, you know, that manage the partner network, that manage sort of the mid-market and SMB motion were the ones that were like, no, a product like this will fly off the shelves because the core product we have for this is frankly much more an enterprise-centered offering, and it's priced and packaged and built in a way that's different with for different requirements. Even though the feature list is somewhat overlapping, the reality is this product doesn't scale down market. Is what they were telling me, and so they became advocates, which then you know gave us the the go ahead to start piloting. It must have been scary because you you're trying to weave your way through this, you know, very big enterprise that you've never been in something that big before. And now you're trying to build this business case. You might be stepping on some people's toes. You always have the naysayers. You have some people that are the immune system that's trying to kill you off. There's an immune system. And then you're thinking, I'm putting in all this work and is it ever going to get approved? Right. I mean that's that was a that was a real challenge for you. Yeah, it was. And, you know, now at the same time, I had a lot of opportunities to just see what really good execution on the product and engineering side does look like. VMware is quite strong at, you know, producing quality products. And I was in all the executive team meetings. I was in the product reviews. And even if I wasn't the sort of owner of of the product, I was like very heavily involved in influencing the messaging or the packaging or the, or the product roadmap and built really strong relationships there. So even if it wasn't this area of new product that I had sort of direct, uh, you know, authority over, you know, the business case and building out with my, my little scrappy group of uh, uh, friends there, just the experience I got, just being part of the business unit, being part of the executive staff of the general manager, you know, sitting with product and engineering. I don't want to downplay how, how much, you know, learning happened there just through that experience. Right. Hey Johnny, before we before yeah. we move on to um, the the culmination of all these like perfect storm of all these experiences and all these great market opportunities that this <laughs> unbelievable firm called MongoDB, I I'm I'm sitting thinking about something Sahir that is the most elite product focused people that I've ever seen. And you talked about it, like how to get your people motivated. <clears throat> how much, um, how did you do that by, like, I call it sitting in the seat in the moment of the customer's pain. So I've seen great product developers come up with great features, but they're only great if they solve a problem. They're only great if they, <laughs> if the, if the consumer, if the buyer, if the user is feeling that pain. So how do you balance the innovation, the great, you know, the great technical minds that you've probably seen that are coming up with this innovation and the next greatest thing to sitting in the seat of the moment of the pain that yeah, what you're Sonny. developing solves. How do you Johnny, balance you're right. That? I've seen some products that can't have come out and I think that's a solution looking for a problem. 
That's right. <laughs> it doesn't have one yet. That's right. It looks but great. It, it's got a lot of features and functions, and it's looking for a problem, but it doesn't. It hasn't as long as you get it right all the time. We but you got to balance that, right? <laughs> you got to balance innovations to here, but then you also have to. You got to balance innovation with solving a, a need. How do you do that? How do you get people focused on that? I think. Um, I think a lot of times it's easy to think, okay, product, you know, owns the product roadmap. And that means product determines what gets built exactly. And the, and the answer is, or actually not that it's really product owns the customer pain and the prioritization value of, of that pain and solving it in what order. And what motivates engineers is not getting told what, to build exactly and how to build it. That's actually a horrible situation, but actually a clear articulation of the customer problem and how a customer ultimately should be using the product to solve that pain. Because what that then does is it frees up the engineer's creativity and technical brilliance to go solve the problem and not just, you know, the obvious like way, like, you know, we say this all the time, like the customer thinks they want a feature and they'll document exactly how yeah. they want a feature. Yeah. And a great product manager doesn't just take that for granted and say, we need this feature or this button this way that acts this, you know, and this, you know, behavior. It's really discovering the underlying pain and the requirement and then bring that requirement back to the engineer. Now, sometimes the answer may be exactly what the customer asked for. Well, other times the answer may be something that's way more innovative, way more valuable, and way more maybe general purpose to a broader set of the market than something that just one customer thinks they need a, a particular solution to. So I think great product people can really articulate and translate that pain from the way it's articulated by the customer, which isn't always just like, here's my pain point, here's the business value, but like extracting that, qualifying that documenting that in a way that's crisp and concise in user stories or product descriptions back to an engineer, but not overstepping the line and going to trying to define how that problem gets solved because that problem, that's what you want your engineers solving for. They're the creative, you know, sort of engineering technical depth to go solve the problem in a novel way. And that's how the innovation gets unlocked. And that's a tough balance because the lines are not some fixed, you know, prescriptive playbook. You have, you know, a, a lot of times you hear in the, you know, industries, just, you know, simplifications thrown out like product defines the what and engineers define the how and right. reality is like, yeah, that's a nice guiding principle. But I think the best teams are the ones where there's such alignment with an engineering lead and a product manager where the engineering leads, not afraid to go more into like, Hey, we should build this. It could be so cool for our customers. Here's why, why, why. And the product person can sharpen, validate it with the market, validate it with customers. And conversely, if the product manager oversteps a little bit on sort of how a problem should be solved, it doesn't become an allergic reaction of that's not your job. There's just a mutual trust there that creates in my opinion, that's sort of on the inbound side of the role, the most cohesive teams is that sort of like, Everyone knows the role, but there's a natural overlap of trust built there and everyone knows sort of what you're solving for. And the product manager has a big job in making that clear in terms of, you know, the problem you're solving for and what you're going after in terms of the end customer. Johnny, we're talking about this topic of alignment here, which is a really good segue um, as we, because when I think about alignment, I, I really think about 
you know, MongoDB and, and the, just the incredible things that you all have done in that company and in the marketplace. But talk a little bit about, you talked a little bit about product and product marketing. I want you to bring in go-to-market. I want you to bring in strategy. I want you to bring in, when, we, when, when you think about alignment and you think about the importance of alignment, what advice would you give to companies as it relates to um, making sure you got that nailed? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's any like magic here. Some of this might sound obvious, but I do think it's basics that sometimes get forgotten. And, yep. you know, and it's never, it, one, like I think the leaders at the top, especially in, or, you know, your peer group in a company, that idea of that being the first team and your functional team being the second team in a lot of ways, like sounds very obvious. Every, you know, sort of team building coach in the, in the industry will tell you that's the aspiration, but I think that's really important because like, if you can't get your peers to feel like, okay, this is my first team. They're the ones I lean on, whether it's, you know, your my level, it's the, you know, and lean on our CRO or our CMO or a CTO, you know, as peers, I think of that sort of as my first team. And then the function I run is, and I don't mean this in a negative way, they're the second team. Like I have to think of, you know, sort of the alignment that starts at the top. And that's where I think a lot of times things get fragmented when, and this happens at every level. I'm just using it sort of at the exact level here at Mongo. But I think I really, really, really focus within my own teams of making sure each layer needs to work together, for, you know, very closely and be first team. And it's not always easy. And I'm not saying it's, it's perfect by any definition, but I think that unlocks a lot of alignment because if there's not like competition, you know, in, you know, sort of fragmenting agendas at a particular layer, it makes everything else underneath those functional leaders so much easier to execute on. Now, that takes intention, you know, yeah. it, it, the organizational structure doesn't enforce that. The organizational structure enforces the opposite, where you become much more functionally aligned. You spend more time managing your team and make sure they're executing on their part of the, the puzzle, which is obviously crucially important. But I, I do believe that intentionally making sure that at any different layer, that peer group is a real team, you know, whether it's first team, second team, or just in general, a real strong team and there's alignment and openness and trust there is sort of a big part of alignment. And, you know, as a product head, I had spent and have to constantly spend a lot of my time with my peers, you know, debating, are we doing the right thing? Like educating, explaining, and making sure we're all hearing each other and that it, our product strategy is understood. And that's, that's hard. You know, it's not, it's not a just like, okay, this is such a large company with a large portfolio and a very dynamic market that takes a lot of repetition, debate, understanding and tuning, right? Because obviously there's input. It's not like it's all coming from product or, or R and D. So I think this sort of idea of first team mentality, intentionality of making sure to foster that alignment at the top and, and gut check it. You know, i I personally have different ways of doing this, right? I, I fly around the world and, you know, go out of my way to spend time with, you know, my peers because I get so much back in terms of what I learn and just mm. building that trust and alignment. It's really hard to do when you're always just in sort of like an operational meeting, checking in every week on things. So, you know, everyone has their different tactics, but, you know, that's my way of being intentional in one, one aspect of that, uh, of alignment. And then, um, you know, in terms of products specifically as a, as a CPO, 
a lot of times in a technology company, which is obvious, uh, probably natural, great product leaders do come out of engineering, but then they have trouble really, and maybe they can, they become, you know, they go to MBA, get an MBA and become like really solid business thinkers, but to, just having great business thinking and deep technical background doesn't necessarily give you empathy or understanding of how complicated executing a go-to-market is, both from the sales or, or marketing side. And so I just happen to be lucky because of my background to have you know, been in some of those roles, had to roll up my sleeves and fill in for some of those roles where right. it was absent in some <laughs> cases. And here at Mongo, you know, certainly we've had various transitions and and some of the teams, you know, I've run big parts of marketing, you know, to varying levels of success at, uh, you know, at different times. Um, and so, like, you just build that empathy of, oh, okay, now, like, I really understand as much as I can how these other functions need to operate, what's important to them, what's hard for them, so that if I need to get a new product rolled out, I can think more holistically about the entire value chain and what it needs to be, how to get things across. And this is not like perfect or easy, but you know, I have this idea of sort of a 360 degree product manager or product marketer. It's kind of a cheesy tagline, but what I mean by that is that, you know, you need people who are skilled and energized by being in a meeting one hour with finance, another hour with marketing, another with a customer, another with sales, another with operations, you know, and on and on, all in the same day. And that takes a lot of skills to be credible to be able to do that, let alone have the energy and be energized by that context switching as opposed to you know, drained by it. So that's sort of some of the characteristics I think great pe- product people need to drive that alignment at any layer of the organization. Yeah, and you're saying what helped you is you had been in so many of those roles so you could empathize with the position that they might be in. Yeah, and, and, and the relationships to some degree. And, you know, when we, when I first joined MongoDB, it was a much smaller company. So, you know, alignment was me walking around the office, you know, at the end of every day, doing my rounds with every single, every single team, checking in on how things are going. And then, you know, flying around the world, spending 200 miles a year, getting in every deal, every QBR, every, you know, running every enablement session. It's a very different company at a much different scale right now. So, like, the adjustment I personally have had to make and we've had to figure out at the organization is, okay, now we're 4,000 people. You know, it can't just be, you know, one individual flying around the world, winning the hearts and minds. How do we make this more programmatic? So that became the learning for me of how to influence my peers and, and how to really get buy-in from the leadership of the, and hold them accountable of, you know, helping drive their part of the organization. And that's a two-way street, obviously. So, you know, it's a very different thing driving that alignment and launching a new strategic initiative at 4,000 people than it was launching Atlas yeah. actually at 500 or 600 or whatever we were. Yeah. And that's where I want to go right now. So um, let's, I want to go back a couple of years. MongoDB had, you know, an on-prem product, right? Everybody was going to the cloud. You were going to come out with Atlas and the sales force was scared. They didn't really understand it. They thought, okay, they're going to come out with this product that, you know, is in the cloud. People can download it and they won't need us as salespeople. So there was that when you talk about different constituents that you had to go sell to. Talk a little bit about, you know, launching this 
you know, first major cloud product, which has done phenomenal in the market, unbelievable. And then some of the challenges, you know, when you look back as to, you know, some, some of the challenges of launching Atlas. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, we've been very fortunate. I don't think, you know, the success we've had in the, you know, the growth, the trajectory of the product is really so, you know, we're very, we're very lucky. I remember signing up for that first plan in year one of, I don't know, 15 or $20 million at ARR or something and being (laughs) like, man, if we hit that, it's going to be awesome. And now I look back, it's like, this is crazy. So we've been very lucky with good technology and a great market. Um, But in terms of like going back, I think there were a few things that kind of stuck out and were were kind of challenges that, you know, one, we did recognize that SaaS, and I lightly touched on this earlier, would be a way, not, it's not just another product priced in a different way, you know, on the shelf or another SKU. It's a, it's fundamentally an opportunity to really diversify the go-to-market, which is what I touched upon earlier but I believe this even more so now, it is a company business model transition and transformation. It's not a, oh, you have your on-prem business, launch a SaaS version of the product and 90% of things stay the same, except for maybe how you build the product or price the product. No, the entire company like needs to change in every function, one way, shape or form. And so I think the ability to do that, one of the, the decisions we made early on was to not really treat it like a fully formed independent kind of business unit. And that created challenges for me because it meant it was super matrixed and I had to, you know, work through influence and, you know, helping you know people in each function sort of evolve to becoming a SaaS first support team or a SaaS, you know, early days of the SaaS CSM model, you know, way back yeah. when. All those aspects. So, you know, I think having that mindset of, okay, this is a diversification opportunity for the revenue and how we go to market. And also that, well, we're not going to do this as a side BU because this needs to be a transformation was both a good decision and also challenging because, you know, it's, you don't have the authority to lead everything directly through, you know, Mm. management hierarchy. You have to really you know, fund and win, win the hearts and minds and show the successes of each of the functional leaders to get that buy-in. That was very early on one of the big, you know, things, whether it was a marketing organization or certainly the various functions in sales or what we needed to get in terms of operations, reporting, finance aspects. Every single one of those was like, mm. you know, scrappy, going to those teams, getting one or two people to help out and then build it up. But in hindsight, the fact that each team felt ownership and transition as opposed to, oh, there's a cloud team over there. They own the cloud stuff was a big, important point because otherwise we wouldn't have transitioned to being a SaaS first company. We would have had a side project that's a SaaS company, the SaaS yeah. company. Because the, you know, the enterprise software business was successful. It was growing. It still is growing really well. Right. Right. So um, I think that was a challenge, but also a, a good decision to just kind of like pay forward some, some tips there. I think the two go-to-market oriented things that were really hard, I think, but it paid off really well was certainly, John, you talked about sort of getting over the, the belief and fear factor of there's a self-service version of this product. I'm used to selling to operations. Now you're asking me to sell to the development team on a very different value proposition. It's an early product. I don't, it doesn't have all the features I'm used to saying are important to enterprise yet. And I'm hitting my quota. 
on my enterprise software product, like, and, you know, frankly, you helped a lot there on in terms of driving sort of the right incentive structure and getting that attention on, on the team. And, you know, I think having the support of Dave and, you know, you from the board, uh, being able to say, no, this is strategically important for the company. We're going to put our money where our mouth is to drive the right behavior and get attention on it, hold the you know leadership accountable. But then also, I think one of the things we developed now that's sort of mainstream within the company's culture, but at the time was, we're all trying things out, was we came up with sort of a mentality in go-to-market that's much more like a development mentality in terms of agile development, pilots, iteration. So I remember in those early days, the inside sales team was in many ways like, our experimentation engine. We, you know, yes. are we packaging this thing pro- properly? Are the contract vehicles right? Is the pricing at the right level? What are the enablement gaps? I feel like every quarter we were tweaking something: some incentives, some programs, some initial, you know, incentive for the customers, some program. And I think a lot of organizations still think in the I have one opportunity once a year to think about packaging of the product and my sales comp plan, and if I get it wrong. Oh no. And we sort of found a way to try things out much more iteratively, iteratively without having to pull the big scary lever of a one-time big change. And that's paid itself forward at a much larger scale with all the stuff our CRO Cedric is driving now. But that culture, I think, in those early days was developed as through challenges. It was like we'd run into something and hey, we'd hear in a QBR, iterate back and you know, to yeah. the roadmap, change the packaging, change the incentives that cycle time was faster than I'd seen at any other company. I think mm. that was a big piece. Uh, and, and I think just it goes a long way when you're like, I think show people you're in the boat. So like being in the deals, not just like here's the right messaging and here's the packaging and call us if you need help, but literally like being in the deals, like on customer calls, strategizing on how we beat the competition, working on deal reviews, as you know, most people don't expect that from a VP of product, but like myself and some of the, the folks on the team that are still at the company, that was the mentality we had. We're like, we're going to be part of the sales team selling these, these deals. And that won a lot of buy-in and it yeah. was, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but that was, that was a big part of it. The, the, the other on the go-to-market side, the big rock and John, you were also very involved in this was we knew we had a self-service opportunity and, but uh, you know, the easiest way to think about it now is we had a website that had a fair amount of traffic because MongoDB is popular and we had an okay enough product to get started on a credit card. And we kind of glued those things together and somehow like revenue started flowing in. We had like no idea how to go scale a funnel, optimize a funnel, understand the data of how people are flowing through what experiments can we run to, you know, really grow it. It was just sort of growing because like, stuck two things together. So, you know, that created a lot of reorganization and, you know, focus in the organization. We brought in new skill sets and learned how to really be this sort of product-led growth SaaS business the hard way, you know, of, of, you know, trying and reorging and getting new team members and creating new teams and engineering all the way through marketing. And all the way through client success, customer support. Everything. Completely change. Yeah not done like there's so much room for innovation in this market like yeah. i think that this is like in b2b businesses this idea of a consumer oriented style go to market is still very early days and and you know i do yes. think 
very happy to like have pulled off the level of sophistication we have here, but we are constantly innovating and trying to push the ball forward there. And, you know, I, I came from enterprise sales in that, you know, sort of distribution model. So this was not something that I had like, you know, done it before I had to kind of bring in the people and, you know, really just learn and really dig in deep to get that culture, the people, that process going. And in the early years, it was sort of independent. It was like we had the self-service channel and we had our sellers, you know, driving migrations or, or new deals or new business going out there. But I think the last couple of years, it's really been the intersection of those things and how do we make those. And we've really kind of created a bit of a, like a flywheel effect really there between yes. self-service driving the sales, you know, uh, acquisition model and identifying which customers are the ones that we want to put attention on as soon as possible and nurture them ultimately to, you know, multi-million dollar contracts. Unbelievable. Johnny, you want to, you, so many nuggets you want me to summarize? I mean, I'm feeling like we could keep going. I know it. And I, I feel just, like, unfortunately yeah. for people that don't know, so here, like we could absolutely keep going down this road for like two more hours, but it's been yeah. over an hour. So, we might have to have them back and you might have Easily. to do a little wrap-up. Because there's I, a cup, there's a I few deep dives. Either that or I'm being long-winded, but... No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Excellent. Unbelievable. There's a few deep dives that maybe we'll, uh, we'll come back to. I want you to think about this and just be ready when we come back to you. The, the role, and you said a dual accountability, the a dual accountability to the... Um, I'm just going to take it, Johnny. I want him to answer this. Go the dual it. accountability of the seller, I heard what you said about the accountability of the, the technical resources, but how about the accountability of the seller that's got this mentality and might even have a mentality from the company, show the product, show the product, show the product, and then a freaking miracle happens. Like that drives me nuts. Like we're, we're supposed to, we show the product and then a miracle happens. What advice would you give the sellers that might even be in a company that are saying, hey, just show the product, show the product, show the product. I'm really how to take a good reflection to say, okay, I know there's some pressure. We got a great product, show the product. We're gonna show the product. I've got great technical resources. I've gotta have them show what means the most to the customer. Would you sit in that seat for a second and just talk to our salespeople out there that are under all this pressure to show the product, show the product, what advice would you give them? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is um, solid discovery. Because if you're showing the product just in a generic demo, like, yeah, maybe you get lucky and the customer's smart enough to latch on to something that they get excited about and it progresses to the next meeting. But your chances of having a higher hit rate of really resonating with that customer goes up drastically if you've done solid discovery prep your pre-sales team. And I would say actually bring your pre-sales team into those discovery calls. If you're early on, you're still developing your skills, like, and say like, I don't need you showing a demo here. I need you like digging into these technical areas to see if we can find some pain. And, you know, and, and really treating that discovery exercise once you land that first meeting as a team effort. And it's only going to make the show the product later on much more customized and much more likely to land and have a conversion rate to the next step in the process. So, you know, top of mind, I think like there's no shortcuts, like really, you know, go slow to go fast. The old slingshot kind of analogy pull back is, you know, early in the cycle is 
good discovery, good deep discovery, understanding really where the nuggets are, because that's going to allow your pre-sales engineer to do a much more targeted and impactful demo. And frankly, it's more interesting for the SA or pre-sales engineer as well, because they're not just like, here's the script, boom, I'm like, you know, <laughs> going through the motions. Yeah. It's like, all right, I got to customize it in this way. All right, when you say this in terms of pain, here's the snippet of the demo, you know, that I'm going to show that lines up to where you're playing back from a business problem and pain standpoint. So it becomes a sort of alchemy between the rep who knows the, the pain, the essay's already been prepped or been part of that discovery, and then, a, you know, a customized demo against that. And the reality is the demo's rarely ever 90% customized. It's really yeah, that sure. last you know, you have your standard stuff, but it's that last 20%, it's the last 30% that if you tune it right, sequence it right, cut out the stuff that's uninteresting, it just, you know, nails the, the, the customer. The customer's already steeped in the pain because you drug them through the glass on discovery. Love it. So it lands. So that's they the think number the one. Made, they the think glass. the product was made for them versus, you know, show us the product. And you think, well, the, if I showed you all these features and functions, it would take five hours. Do you have five yeah. hours? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let us ask you a couple of questions. So discovery. And I'd say the, the last point I'll make on that is there's a, you know, a more modern version of the same exact thing too. If it's not a, you know, outbound enterprise sale, somebody in the self-service or the free tier, if you know how they're using the product, what they're doing, you see patterns from other customers it's the same exact thing. You can now approach that customer, you know, and say, Hey, it looks like you're having these challenges. There might be more we can do, or maybe a better way to solve this, but it's the same philosophy behind it. It's a line. Discovery. Your discovery. Your discovery, discovery it's just a hint you're, you're getting. Yeah. Your discovery in essence is their insights into their usage. Yeah. It's a starting point. Right. And then, yeah. and then you build on top of that and use it yeah. as a way to get in and have a conversation awesome. that, it's way higher value than just some, you know, like lack of data or lack of usage. It's, it's like a warm intro. Love it. No more, no more. So definitively we'll say here on this podcast, no more. And then a miracle happens. Show the product and then a miracle happens. All right. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a quick dis, uh, uh, summary. There's so many golden nuggets here. Um, I, I heard this overall theme to hear of, where the product meets go to market. And I really, that's you. Like we should have titled this podcast yes. where the product meets go to market. And really where the technical problem, where the technical requirements create positive business outcomes for customers. And you talked about growth marketing. You talked about the free tier is the oil in the engine of a bottoms up uh, go to market. Um, the answer was uh, in one in, in one uh, specific part. You talked about the answer was how does the customer want to buy? That was your common answer when trying to figure out what are we trying to create, what are we trying to innovate. Let's first look at how does the customer trying to buy, and what are we trying? What are they trying to solve? What problem are they trying to solve? You made an interesting analogy with an abundance mentality versus a scarcity mentality when thinking about what features you give away. What features do you hold? Are we giving away too much? That really resonated for me because I see a lot of companies uh, struggling with that. Um, again, uh, the intersection of technology and the business culture. 
on how to find the voice, a culture of accountability, build technical champions and win POCs. If you are a, if you're on the technical side, if you kind of think about your role, not only there, but really kind of owning that because nobody else is going to own that. Build technical champions and win the POC if you're on the technical side of the house. Product owns the customer pain and the engineers kind of uh, are, are, will give them enabling the ability to talk about how they're going to solve it. We talked a lot about alignment. I loved your, your, your story about first teams and first teams have peers. And then your second team are the people that report to you. And it's not diminishing them that they're not, they're not your first team. It's just your second team has a first team. And I see great cultures that think that way on alignment. You got to go work it out with your first team counterparts. The problem is when a second team goes to a first team person and says, I can't solve it with my first team person, so I need you to come in and dad or mom needs to come in and solve it. And I see cultures of accountability. I like how you said it, the layers of first teams and second teams, and each layer needs their own first team. I really, really love that. Uh, You talked about, um, I loved it in the cloud business, leading without authority in that matrix organization which really helped you launch the cloud business, but also not kind of put it off on the side. So it wasn't perfect. And because of what you earned at MongoDB, everybody in that culture earned with trust. If you don't get the comp right, if you don't get things right in the beginning, there's a trust in the culture that says, we're going to fix it. And so there's no fear of if they don't get it right, we're screwed. You know, we're taking away all our opportunities. What I heard you say is we're going to iterate as we go and, and, and we'll make it right. You talked about 360 product management, which is really you're just your alignment topic of being present, being in the field, being with your first team peers, flying to where they are not trying to fly a desk and trying to really it's about building relationships is the best way to build that alignment. And the last advice you gave us was around solid discovery, show the demo, show the demo, show the product, show the product. And you said uh, solid discovery. So by the time we show the product, we are showing it to, we've highlighted the problems and we're showing specific solutions to those problems. Johnny, what I miss. Well, I mean, something that I learned that I didn't know about to hear was, you know, early on, he was kind of looking for where he wanted to go and how one comment from Tim Fessenden about, you know, product was the intersection of, you know, this is where it all comes together, really resonated with Sahir. And I think that really drove him. The second one um, was these days you see a lot of people that are like title hungry and they're a little too anxious and they want to go up the ladder really, really quick. And someone likes to hear when you listen to his story is he was in so many different roles that have now not only prepared him to be in the role that he's in, but also have prepared him to be able to discuss things and sell things internally with other people that have been in those roles because he knows how to reach out to those people. He knows how they're measured what their concerns are because he's lived in their shoes. Yeah. And, you know, 
Selling internally sometimes is even more difficult than selling externally because even when we sell externally, we've got to put ourselves in our customer's shoes. But since he here, you know, lived in those shoes, you know, that's why he's so prepared to sell internally. He's so prepared to be in the position that he's in today. So I think he puts the customer, what I heard Johnny is he puts the, he knows how to put the customer first and the internal constituents are nothing more than another customer, which is, which is a huge, but are you blushing to hear? Yeah. It's an, I got to like find a way to chime in to break this up. It's got a little. <laughs> We're freaking starstruck. So here we're starstruck. Yeah, a little bit, but yeah. the, I think the horizontal movement thing uh, is, you know, they called out John is really, especially for those early in their career. It's so easy to get enamored with, okay, my next step has to be leading my team. And don't get me wrong, there's, you know, growth and management leadership is really important, perhaps long term, but I feel like it's so much harder to say, no, I want to switch functions. But actually, I think early on, especially that gives so much back later on in anyone's career. And I, it, that's one of my like coaching items for any of the junior folks and that are joining an org or folks that want to, you know, a high ambition is actually like, go do something else, go learn that other, you know, skill set. It may be hard, you may not even be good at it but you got to try and you're going to get so much back from that experience. It only makes you better. Even if you come back to where you started. Right. Uh, it's such a good point. It's so much easier to do it early in your career. Also, you yeah. know, just Great advice. don't be, don't be afraid. Go for it. Yeah. All right. So we're going to, we're going to do a little something fun to, to wrap this up. So here we're going to do some rapid fire questions and then Johnny's going to come back and talk to, to, to you about something that's near and dear to, to your heart and to our hearts. Right. Uh, of uh, from a charity perspective, first, first, let's do some rapid fire fun. Ideal day, ideal day off of work. Uh, ideal day off of work for me and for our, my family is traveling. You know, I think that's a big passion of myself, my wife. Um, you know, my kids have been all over the place, um, either you know just on family trips or tagging along. If, if the, you know if they can come along, if I'm going somewhere for work, and so you know the idea of going to you know across California or going to another country, and you know that's the thing really motivating. You know, best sort of place thing. you've ever visited with the family. Best best vacation you ever visited with the family. Best with the family. This is a tough one. Um, I have a soft spot. This is not unique in any way for beach vacations. My wife does not. So we end up (laughs) more often than not going to big cities. I'm also a city person. So we've, we've been very lucky that because of my work travel and my wife grew up and spent some time in Europe, we spent a lot of time in both London and Paris. And I'd say the time we, every time we go there, it almost feels like we've been there a enough that it feels like you've settled right into your some of your favorite spots you're doing something new it's not like it's some big big new like stressful adventure it's just yeah. sort of like all right we're back let's go to some of our favorite spots and the things we like so i think those love two it. cities in particular love it favorite meal favorite meal uh i'm a jersey guy so it's probably some combination of pizza or pasta that's common I thought you were going to say Philly steak or something. Philly uh, cheese I like steak. that too, but I'm probably, you know, I'm Central North more than I am Central yeah, South right, Jersey. Right. So. But, uh, but yeah, for How me, about I'm a favorite movie, brother? How about a favorite movie? Uh, favorite movie is um, maybe this one's a little unexpected, but um, Casablanca. I know it's a very wow. popular movie that wow. a lot of people love. You're an old romantic, huh? I, I'm actually not at all, but I love <laughs> that movie. I just think it's got like, 
you know, it's it's got it's got the like you know certainly the complicated love story, but it's got the yeah. geopolitics and yeah, World yeah. War II, the Nazis, and it's got the like exotic Morocco thing going on there. So it's got. <laughs> I really love that movie. It's one of those things I can put on any time, and you know, it's like I never get bored of it. I love it. Hey, Johnny, would you um? Would you kind of set this last one up for us on the charity? Yeah, so here, do you have a, a favorite charity that you like to give to or you think about? Sent this across. I, I really appreciated it. So for me, I mean, um, unfortunately, I lost a close family member to suicide. So for me, that's sort of like one you know cause. And there's many great charities certainly focused on it. But if you look at kind of, you know, mental health right now and suicide rates in the States and all of that, the numbers aren't really looking good. And, and certainly the personal, you know, situation, you know, connected me to that. So for me, there's a, an organization called the Jed Foundation that focuses on mental health and, and, te- and suicide, especially in teens and young adults. And uh, that is a, a charity I've contributed to, certainly not the only one going after that, uh, you know, that challenge that we're facing, but that's mm-hmm. the one I well, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Amen. Here. Amen. Hey, see here. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna say uh, thank you to you. Thank you for being so prepared. Thank you for being a great, uh, you know, on the selfish side for being a great uh, uh, person to work with on the force management side. We've had just unbelievable outcomes with you and your thought process, and so we just thank you for all that. Thanks for taking the time with our listeners and you, uh, you knocked it out of the park, dude. I appreciate you tons. Thank yes, you. Here. I really appreciate Very it. grateful. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. No, for being it's my pleasure. Friend. I mean, really to appreciate be, it. To be in a conversation right. with the two of you on this stuff is, is humbling. <laughs> so I do appreciate it. Thank all you guys. Right. Appreciate you Thanks. tons. And thank you. And thank you all for listening to revenue builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.